This episode of the podcast is brought to you by our new sponsor, Impact Tactical. They're a tactical outfitter for first responders and military. Uh, me, guys, personally, I can vouch for them and their quality service. I've used them for the last uh, 11 years of my career. Be sure to check them out at impacttactical.com. Uh, that's M-P-A-K tactical.com. And uh, be sure to tell them that uh, Two Cops, One Donut saying. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by HRH Combat Arms. They can turn your vision into reality. They specialize in gunsmithing and Sarah coating your Cerakote specialist is air force veteran and retired police sergeant paul ware aka the sarge he can Cerakote your firearms auto parts tools even your sports equipment this veteran-owned business is located at 5025 saunders suite 103 fort worth texas 76119 you can call them at 682-304-0363 and you can find them online at www.hrhcombatarms.com that's www.hrhcombatarms.com All right, welcome back. I am your host, Eric Levine, and this is my podcast, Two Cops, One Donut. Uh, for everybody out there, I got me a, a new special guest outside of police work. So if you're going to listen to this podcast, just know that it's not a cop this time, uh, which tends to be the, you know, it's the par. So I have with me Miss Latasha Jackson McDougal. How are you, ma'am? I'm well. Thank you for having me. So I was, uh, you were recommended to me by Michelle Morgan, who does the One Safe Place. Um, it's a domestic violence uh, center um, for victims that are victims of domestic violence. Um, and uh, we got to talking. She's a very strong personality like me. Um, by the way, you can swear, you can drink on this podcast, do whatever you want. Um, there's no, there's no limit. Uh, so have fun. Um, this could be a real long conversation. It could be a short 20 minute talk. It's just whatever you're feeling. It's how okay. we're, we're vibing. So, um, but, uh, yeah. So a whole point of this podcast, uh, is education, bridging the gap between police and the community, um, through long-term, long-term discussions, um, and, uh, you know, humanizing trying to put right. a face on all, all sides, not just cops, not just firefighters, first responders, but the people we serve as well. Um, I need to know your perspective on police. I need to know your perspective on what domestic violence, which is something we're going to talk about, um, which is your specialty um, and, and things of that nature. So, but before we get into that, ma'am, um, and we start talking about Cheryl's voice and all that cool stuff, um, where are you from? Where did you grow up? Uh, what's your education level? I am from Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, I am a graduate of Auditon Heights High School, class of 2001. I'm going to date myself. Hey, we graduated <laughs> the same year. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. Yep. So I'm from Fort Worth, Texas. Um, I live in the city. I'm very passionate about, you know, living here in the city. Um, education wise, I have a bachelor's in social work. Um, I have a master's in social work and a master's in criminal justice, and I'm currently uh, working on my dissertation part um, at Grand Canyon University. Very nice. Um, you you got a master's in criminal justice? 
Yes, I got my master's. I got all of so my I got my bachelor's and my two masters at University of Texas in Arlington. Okay. Very cool. Yeah, I did my master's in criminal justice and criminology through TCU. Um and I got made fun of a lot by my friends. They're like, dude, that's such a wasted degree. I'm like, I don't think it is. I no, think- it's not. I'm um when I was working So once I graduated with my master's, I got honors in both of my master's and I was asked to be an adjunct at UTA and I kind of advocated for uh, the uh, domestic violence, the intimate partner violence course for criminal justice majors because um, really I thought about police officers, to be honest, um, how it would be helpful. Okay. And so it's a, it's a big thing. My, my, I'm looking all shiny in this camera right here. So should have put makeup on. (laughs) <laughs> i'll have makeup on you'll be fine <laughs> all right we'll be good i got that's why this is man makeup beards are man makeup that's how we cover our face <laughs> um all right so growing up um what what was what was on the horizon for you like what what was your vision of where your career what kind of type of career did you want and all of that well, um, so I didn't have a typical um, childhood growing up. Um, unfortunately, um, I witnessed the murder of my mother and the suicide of my father, and I was left for dead right here in Fort Worth in the alley by my father um, at 18 months. So immediately I was orphaned, raised by my grandparents, um, and really I just didn't know what what life had for me just because um, I was struggling with a lot of health issues because of the trauma. I was struggling with um, just, you know, trying to understand things. Um, I found an old letter I had when I was a kid that my spelling was all bad and I just struggled really hard. And so um, with the help and love of my grandparents and um, the education system, the public education system at that time, I was able to, you know, overcome that. Um, I started doing, you know, therapy and those types of things. And I kind of, at first I envisioned that I wanted to be the next Whitney Houston. I can't sing, but I thought in my mind I could. (laughs) You and me both, girl. (laughs) (laughs) But I still love karaoke. So I go and in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to be Whitney. So um, that was kind of what I wanted to do. And then um, I did a lot of acting and, you know, I said, okay, maybe I'll be my Angelo or something. So I kind of went on this journey of figuring out what I wanted to do. Um, Then eventually I landed on wanting to serve others because, I mean, my grandmother taught us, you know, even though we were poor, um, we had food stamps. I I, I was on government assistance, housing, uh, all of that, anything you could possibly think of. I mean, you know, anything that the government was providing, um, we had because I was orphaned. And so we didn't have a lot of money growing up, but my grandmother still um, taught us uh, how to um, create things to give to others and provide for others, even though we had less than. And so that's when I really had a heart of giving. And that's kind of where social work started to come in. But the criminal justice side of it, um, really, I turned 18, went off to college, came home because my grandmother got sick. And um, I met a guy at a club. <laughs> I met a guy at a club and I was working at the mall doing, you know, service stuff, customer service. I'm a very friendly person. And so customer service kind of was easy. And um, he said, why are you doing this? You can be, you know, get a job at the sheriff department. I'm like me, the sheriff department. Um, So sure. I applied. I became a booking clerk at the sheriff department. 
quickly promoted three, four different times, um, you know, working as a jailer, working in security control, um, just different things. And that's when I realized that, okay, maybe criminal justice is, you know, something I want to do. And it kind of meets social work. And so I kind of made it work in my mind <laughs> that I wanted to do that. Um, so I have years working at the sheriff department. Um, and then I transitioned to, um, actually, when I was working at the sheriff department and going to school, I wanted to be a lawyer. And it wasn't until we had a case that um, the person was wrongfully convicted. And it kind of messed my world up because I was, you know, kind of shaken by that. I'm like, oh, God, what if I was that attorney, you know? And so I kind of started figuring out more of a social work side of things and how I could serve in that way. And and so I left. I um, had to leave the sheriff department to do an internship for my social work degree. Once I did that, um, I was off to probation. Uh, that's when I worked with Judge Carr's court, um, learning about sex trafficking, and I became an expert in sex trafficking during that time. Um, and so that's kind of when domestic violence started coming in, in grad, grad school, when um, uh, one of my mentors, she kind of asked me about, because I never talked about the loss of my mom and the trauma I was dealing with. I didn't talk about any of it because I didn't want to. And she pulled me to the side and said, Latasha, you have a lot that you're struggling with and you you need to start going to therapy and deal with it. And so when I did, I did a full investigation on the death of my mother and discovered, you know, at that time it was 84. Law enforcement failed her. The prosecution's office failed her. And so I said, "Okay, what can I do to serve in this area? And I kind of went on this whole trailblaze of um knocking, you know, asking questions, um, you know, asking neighbors and all these people of what they knew about my mother and um, figuring out what we could do in here in Tarrant County to better in that area. So that's how I kind of slip and fell into the okay. world. Of so I want to, I want to go back and visit something you said, the, 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 the courts and the, the police failed your mom. Yes. Um, Obviously, police work ain't perfect because if it no. was, I wouldn't have to do a podcast <laughs> and right. I'm trying to educate. And now we're talking right. in the 80s, early yes. 80s. So we're talking about 84. I mean, yeah. and domestic violence um, have really just became a national even holiday. Like people really want to talking about it, especially in the black community. Um, this happened on the morning side of the area. It wasn't the greatest area. They had, you know, murders in the area, but. Um, people, you know, remember this particular homicide and suicide because it was just something that didn't happen in the black community, um, off, like, especially during that time. And so in 84, they were just still trying to figure it out, to be honest. And so when I'm reading these reports, my mom would call the police and they, you know, they literally were right in here. Um, oh, we, you know, statements. Oh, she's just, she's going to go back. We just told her to come back tomorrow type of thing. And uh, she couldn't make it till tomorrow because he had already kidnapped her at that point. But um, she had to call previous times and, you know, sim similar situation where they didn't take immediate action like they do now. We've came a long way for sure. Um, do we have improvement? Absolutely. But definitely it's nothing like Okay. It was that, that, that's what I was going to get to. Have we have we at least learned from that time to today, mm -hmm. in your opinion, for what you I mean, obviously, you're you're an expert 
uh, when, when it comes to this, um, not only through your experience, through your investigation work, you know, on your own family history, um, but then through your professional work as well. So with that said, um, what's your thoughts and opinions right now about how police social work, um, are handling domestic violence? So I still feel we need, there's room. I think it's better than 84. True. Um, however I do, and, and that's been my prayer and, and my active work of, um, wanting consistency as far as amongst all the different police departments, because we have a lot of them. And, you know, I also work in criminal courts and sometimes I see cases to where, or I may hear a victim could send me a message for Cheryl's voice and say, I called the police. They came, they, you know, started talking to my abuser about football and, you know, and I'm like, what? That's the, you know, it's 2022, yeah. you know, stuff like that happens. And I, I don't think that some of the people that respond to those calls really realize the seriousness of it. And, and then, if, and then it kind of scares me because domestic violence calls are, you know, really high risk for you guys yes. that, you know, go out there. I mean, those are the calls that, really could take your life. And so it, it, it hurts me when I hear, you know, a victim kind of telling me that, you know, the police officer was not really helpful. Cause I'm like, man, they could have got hurt, you know, just showing up yeah. like that and not really understanding the seriousness of it. So I do think that we still have, you know, work to do. Um, I think it's getting a lot better because they are reaching out. I mean, I have police departments or conferences that reach out to me asking me, hey, can you come and talk? Can you come do a workshop educating our police officers, educating our criminal justice, you know, judges and attorneys? It's kind of like a whole um, group that, you know, has to continue getting education. Um, and I understand why they will reach out to me because I am a survivor and I'm speaking from the child left behind because most people don't think that, you know, it affects us, but it does. Um, so I do think there's, you know, improvement, but I do, um, continue to work on more improvement. Mm -hmm. So the, if I'm hearing you correctly, um, some of the improvements that police side could be making is with the, um, standardization needs some yeah. sort of standardization across the board versus, you know, this department handles domestic violence and stuff this way versus the city that's right next door to that one. They handle it a completely different way. Exactly. So it's hard for, to keep track, at least for mm -hmm. people like you, piece of dust flying in my face. Um, and in, in, in getting the same product, uh, uh, results that you're looking for, for your victims. Exactly. Okay. exactly. I want everyone to call in and say, wow, this officer was very helpful. And, Unfortunately, we don't get that right. uh, depending on where they're located. Um, they may not get service. And then, you know, sometimes if um, it's a really small town and maybe let's say the, the guy is, um, you know, some type of public um, official or firefighter or something like that. Uh, matter of fact, I have recently had someone send me a message like, you know, I'm scared. My husband's a firefighter. And every time we call the police, they're just really not helping me. Um, and it's sad to hear something like that. And, and, you know, I try to encourage her that, you know, the police is there to help you. And then, but it's hard to do that when yeah. they're coming in saying something opposite. So yeah. I believe the standardization, you know, if everyone is kind of educating all the police officers are having the 
same kind of education about domestic violence and they're all kind of responding the same way. Um, I believe that will be um, so much better, so much better. And victims would actually call a lot sooner before it gets to the point to where they're shooting at the police when they get there. They'll probably call, you know, just when there's something, when the person is making a threat, they will, they will feel comfortable to call because they know that they're going to get some help versus um, not calling. Yeah. One of the things I, I, I'll, I'll give to you from a police perspective, um, when you do hear like, well, they were talking about football, you know, um, in the deal with the firefighter, like the bad, here's the bad part. We do tend to favor first responders, not, not in a, unf- I don't want to say an unfair manner, not it, benefit of the doubt. We tend to, yeah. to give benefit of the doubt. Um, and it's, it's the same across any career. Like if you work at Subway and, you know, one of your fellow workers comes in with their girlfriend and they're you know, not working, you know, you take care of them like that. And I say from experience, cause I worked at Subway at one point. Um, so it, that happens. And mm. I don't want people to sit there and think that we don't recognize that as police. Like, yeah, we see it. And, is it right? Probably not. Right. But it, I think it's human nature and it's, it's a hard thing to even catch yourself doing it. You may not even be cognizant that you're doing that. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we want to give first responders the benefit of the doubt anyway, because they've already cleared all these background checks and all this. They should know how to do the right thing and whatnot. Right. But when it comes to domestic violence, that's not the case. doesn't matter who you, everybody is, is, uh, can can be capable of it right right absolutely and you know honestly um one of the things that i mean i, I worked in that culture you know working at the sheriff department you know we have each other's back i mean the number one priority is going home at the end of the day and so regardless of what you know the person has going on and so i kind of I, I understand that culture and i'm, I'm kind of glad i had the experience because when someone's coming and telling me i'm like explaining to them that you know the culture is like you know your family uh, especially if you're working shift work. I used to work on second shift. So most of my day was spent with those, you know, all of us detention officers. And so we were, we were family. And so you try to look out for each other. Um, I think that, you know, the question becomes, you know, how can we look better, you know, look out for the other person, you know? So if, if the police is showing up and the person is a firefighter, you can, you know, that, that's your brother. Great. But hold them accountable. Yes. And that's the thing, you know, and we have to continue working on accountability. That's one of my biggest thing. I'm like accountable, accountable, accountable. Yeah. And this is the dangerous <laughs> part for cops. And I try to tell young officers this. I'm like, listen, you already know a domestic violence cause the most serious. It's the, it's the most dangerous for us. Statistically speaking, the numbers back that up. Um, you know, and officers that are killed, uh, you know, from gunfire and stuff like that and line of duty, more often than not are from a domestic violence like suspect at some point. So mm-hmm. it's important to know that. And when you show up to a domestic violence call and you don't handle it and then you go home and that person ends up being killed, there's your accountability. Like that's not the mm-hmm. accountability you want to have. Not at all. So take care of it the first time. Mm-hmm. If you think there's any, um, continuance of violence that's possible, uh, any of that, then you gotta, right. you gotta play it safe. Uh, it's just like if somebody 
request an ambulance when you're getting ready to arrest them. It's a pain in the butt. It sucks. You got to wait while they get jailitis. You know, nine out of ten times, that's what it is. But play it safe. Call an ambulance. Have them check him out. Say he's good to go and get out of there. Same with a a DV call. You want to make sure you handle it appropriately and um, go through your due process. Now, the other part that I would like to to get to, like, maybe help for your clarification or maybe a perspective you haven't considered um, when police are there and they're talking football and stuff like that. You try in any way you can to connect on a lower mm-hmm. level, you know, to, to create rapport, create a relationship. So I don't know. That's got to suck to hear from a victim standpoint. Like, yeah. I, I don't want to call a cop to help me. And then he's over there talking football with him. But I also yeah. want victims to understand if any victims listen to this, like it's, it's, it's a way to generate a conversation to get them to lower their guard and start getting real answers. That's just mm. one technique. And then, you know, and that makes sense. You know, de-escalating. I mean, yes. that's your job. Yes. That's a great way to de-escalate, yes. especially with a domestic violence um, call. And so, and to your point, you know, one of the things as an educator and an advocate, we kind of go back to the victims and say, hey, you know, yeah, that's. Su- I know it sounds sucky, but this is why, you yeah. know. And we show them, I know I do, I can't speak for everyone, but I yeah. uh, make sure I show them the statistics of, you know, how high risk those calls are for police mm-hmm. and those, um, and those types of things. So, um, but I still encourage them to not be in fear of calling the police um, because it's, it's so essential to do that. And, and so when I educate, I do, um, you know, provide that information. Yeah. Another good thing to give them is the language. Sometimes people, they're assaulted, you know, in a domestic violence or, you know, physically assaulted. They, but I don't know if it's ego or pride or, you know, like he, you know, he, he threw something at me and it hit me here. Did it hurt? No, it didn't hurt. It, it hurt. Didn't it? Like it caused some pain when it hit. No. Like you, even me as a cop, I'm trying to like, guide them towards the correct language that we need to hear to be able to do something. Right. And yeah, you being an educator and being in law enforcement, you know, being around it at least um, if that's something that isn't, and I'm not saying coach them to lie, obviously that's not what I mean. Don't coach them to lie, but give them the right language that we're looking for so we can at least help alleviate a situation for the night to get an emergency protective order or whatever it is we got to create space, de-escalate them too. Um, and, and, and be able to move on from there. Is that something that, uh, you guys are doing currently? Well, that's the challenging part because, Every victim is different. Um, some of them, by the time the police, they just wanted to stop right then. And so once the police get there, they're like, okay, nothing happened. And that's one of the things that I was a huge advocate in, and so happy that Tarrant County has taken away the, you know, I know you, you probably heard before, well, she dropped the charges. That doesn't happen anymore. The state, the victim can't go and say, oh, it didn't happen, or I don't want to press charges. The state automatically does that. And I was so relieved because yeah. I was 
you know, kind of on the front lines of saying, why does the victim have the, you know, that's what victims do. Yep. They recant. They, they, you know, they, you can get there and 20 seconds later, they're like, oh no, don't, if nothing happened. That's just, that's the part of victims. And we have, a, I will do a whole training on victims and, <laughs> and, and their whys. And sometimes, you know, eventually I started saying, it's up to the community. It's up to us to, to speak up and stand up for them because they just don't, there's so many reasons of why everybody's reason is different and you could get there and they're like, Oh no, they could, the eyeball could be in their hand. They're like, no, it didn't hurt. Cause honestly yeah. it may not hurt because they probably experienced so, something so much worse prior to even calling. Yeah. And so, you know what I mean? So it's like, so you're holding your eye and it doesn't hurt. And they're like, no, no, <laughs> I, I, I felt worse, you know? Yeah. And that's just the reality of some, yeah. some, you know, some of the victims. And so they could say that it doesn't hurt. So I think um, maybe that's an area that can improve as well. Like, okay, if we get there, we see something that happened, we see some type of bruising, regardless if the person saying it hurt or didn't hurt, that's the, the, the guy did something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and that, the physical um, marks and stuff like that, that gives police a lot more to go on. Um, right. where we can take it right out of her hands, his hands and, yeah, more than likely when you're asking them questions, you're not going to some. Now, some of them will give you, a, you know, kind of tell it all because they're in shock that it even happened. But some of them, you know, they won't. Um, they're scared because he may have said made threats, um, you know, in the past. And so they have all this stuff whirling around their heads, um, especially if you have a person who is financially dependent on the abuser and they have kids and he's saying, you know, I'm going to take our kids type of thing. It's just a lot of different factors of why um, they kind of give you police officers a hard time um, mm-hmm. when they come out. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad that we do have that component of where the victim can't call and, and say, I don't want to press charges. It's not in the victim's hands anymore. And so that kind of helps a lot, but I do understand that. Um, Oh, I'm cognizant of the fact that when, you know, when police show up, um, you are looking for specific things to even, you know, do something. And so, um, it makes it hard. (laughs) It makes it, it makes it hard. Yep. We've, um, and another frustrating thing that, um, we will see often is, uh, the, you're talking about when they, they, they say they want to drop the charges and stuff like that. Now, Imagine that from the officer's perspective when he's come he's come out to your house two, three, six, ten, twelve, twenty times, and you're like, How is this dude still around? Like I did the work, because us as officers, we don't get to see the follow-up generally. Right. From large departments anyway. Uh it's all the detectives. And then here you got a detective that starts to put the work in, wants to go get a warrant written. They get through all those processes and they go to talk to the victim. Now they got an uncooperative victim. Case ain't going to go anywhere, you know, um, mm-hmm. or you, you, you get these, what we call repeat customers and you do start to become complacent because you're like, every time I come here, it's just a verbal argument. They're just arguing and mm-hmm. you, you're wasting my time cause you don't do anything that, I mean, this is kind of the way some police will look at it, um, right. but through the growth of domestic violence training, um, I think we're learning that there's all these indicators that we need to start keeping track of. And it's mm-hmm. not just a, I showed up to your house and it was a verbal argument. Now I really need to start taking 
note of the details that have been given to me, you know, objects were thrown, weapons were presented, uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. It shows this progression of escalation. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's, that's important to keep track of. I just don't know, like you said, consistency. I don't know that all departments do that. Right. They don't. (laughs) And then (laughs) another easy component, you know, if, um, if the police officers are keeping track, let's say like a house that you know I've been in 10 times or whatever, that's when you probably want to add, because I, I know budget wise, now everybody has a social worker on staff, but it would be good to, you know, if it's been more than a few times that a police officer has been in the house, bring a social worker along and maybe you can get a better, you know, result and save the kids and whoever's in the situation. Um you know, that's kind of been my take on, you know, you know, using outside resources as far as a social worker or partnering with, you know, one safe place, for instance, you know, they could have an advocate come out and, you know, while the officer is talking to the, the aggressor, the advocate could be talking to the victim and maybe getting, making them feel more comfortable, getting more information from them. And it could also make your job easier in that process. Um, you know, right. Cause I mean, we're not expecting you guys, y'all got, you guys have a lot on your plate and you're not Superman, even though a lot of kids feel like you are, <laughs> <laughs> but you can't do it all. <laughs> Some and, of us try. You, know, you, you could, you could take a couple social work classes, but unless you're a licensed social worker, it's a lot when you're talking about victims. I mean, we have a hard time and we, we went to school, you know, did all these stuff that we have to do and it's not easy. It's not easy. Um, but I do think if police officers and social workers partner together, um, especially in, in, in the city, in our, in my County, um, we really could see some changes on how those calls happen and how the response on both ends. Yeah, I, I agree. I try to tell people, you know, I can be trained in 40 hours, you know, annual training, 40 hour class, um, Mm -hmm. in social work and crisis intervention training and domestic violence. It doesn't make me an expert. It looks Mm -hmm. good on paper. It looks great. But until I walk a mile in somebody like your shoes, who's dealing with this 24 seven at your work, like you're an expert. I'm not an expert. One, I'm not even educated enough to that level. Like I, you, a social work degree or social, what, whatever it's called. Yeah. Uh, social work. <laughs> yeah. Social work degree. And it, you know, so you, you get to that level, you know, that's just the beginning. That's not even you starting with the, the real world experience. That's the education that you got. And then you go yep. step into the profession and now you're getting that level and it stinks. But as cops, we, we're the jack of all and master of none. Like, but yeah. everybody wants us to be a master in all of it. They want you to be yep. a black belt. They want you to be a doctor. They want you to be, you know, an animal expert. They want you to catch the animal. They don't want you to kill the animal. And I'm like, right. that's a snake and he's in your toilet. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know another way to around this without killing it. Cause yeah. <laughs> I, I, snakes don't like, listen, me. If, if it's a snake in my toilet, kill it, please. If, if it's a spider, however, I'm not going to even be in your house. So, <laughs> um, and I've had those calls. Oh my God. Tarantula. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I think that I'm very big on collaborating and partnership, you know, and I think 
a lot of the stuff, especially when it comes to domestic violence and police and um, even in criminal courts. When I worked Judge Carr's Rise program, one thing I loved about working for Judge Carr is um, although he's a judge and he can pretty much make all the decisions on his own, he invites social workers, counselors, uh, housing, um, anybody at the table that could provide service for victims of sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. And then start aligning okay this person needs this service this person needs that service and and you have a whole table of treatment going on and so when it comes to domestic violence um i feel that the same way you know everyone should bring their resources together and partner together like i said it's a community thing because honestly victims are not going to help themselves sometimes sometimes they will you know they'll surprise you but for the most part as we see um, they have a hard time um, doing that. And so it's kind of up to us to say, okay, here's all the resources. And still, we may do all of that and yeah. um, you're back to square one. But I think for the most part, you know, when you do all of those things, um, we can either do one or two things. We can help the victim kind of get out of the situation or hold the offender accountable and get them the help and resources that they need so they can no longer offend. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the the working together because you're basically making an argument that is the premise of this podcast. And it's in police work, in first responders work. Um, we're very dependent upon ourselves. And I try, the argument that I make is police will never reach their full potential without the community and their help. And the community will never reach their full potential without the police. And the same is said when it comes, when we start breaking down police work individually, it, it's an animal call. I can't properly handle an animal call without some, some, without some collaboration with an animal expert. I can't, you know, I may be on a, a, an assault call and there's two pit bulls there that need to be dealt with. Well, I'm trying to deal with that call and I'm dealing with dogs. I don't want to shoot somebody's dog, but I also have yeah. to help people. So when you get those situations, collaboration is best. That's how you're going to service everybody the best you can. When it comes to domestic violence, police are not going to be the experts. We're going to be safety experts. We're going to make sure everybody stays safe and secure. But when it comes to handling the roots of the problem, we don't have the tools for that. And for us right. to think that we can handle it separately without involving y'all when it's a serious case that's that that's the wrong mindset we need to bring you guys in we need to have social workers that are that are game to come out to the field um once we tell them that the scene's safe you know it's no different than the ambulance or the firefighters and you know is the scene safe yep okay we need you guys to come in now let's start mediating and talking and see right. what our threat level is here what are is this a, a real case whatever whatever the case may be um and we have those uh, domestic violence packets. Those are really good help for police. I'm glad those were made. Those were help um, be created by people like you, by people like Michelle, um, that really know, uh, you know, with strangulation and stuff like that. Like, had she never told me the stats, I would have never understood while strangulation was such a big deal. I mean, it makes sense. Yes, obviously, anytime somebody tries to choke your ass, like, that's bad. But yeah, strangulation, that's a whole nother, I mean, step. I mean, that's someone that's strangling someone or quote unquote choking, because some people don't call it strangulation. They say, oh, he choked me. And I'm like, 
the strangulation. Yeah. Um, that person is um, really close to committing a homicide at that point. Yeah. yeah. And as that's like I said, she told me that and I'm like, she knew the numbers. Michelle knew the numbers off the top of her head. So I'm like, yeah, I never knew the correlation there between, you know, reaching that next, the escalation of homicide on, on your partner or, you know, the, the worst one is, you know, the murder suicide stuff, um, which right. tends to happen quite a bit, uh, yep. when it comes to that. And, um, so I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, so you build up your career you, you, to this point, you get your education, you, you reflect and investigate your own situation. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you see some of the shortfalls of policing back then to the adjustments made today. And you start advocating for improvements based on that, which is brilliant. Um, and then you're at that time you're working for who? I was working for probation. Okay. So you're working for probation. Can't talk. You're working for probation. Yes, yep. <laughs> and then you, when, when is the transition to Cheryl's voice and, and, and where you're at today? So while I was working for probation, I did the investigation. I said, you know, I realized my mom, she was my hero. She did everything she could possibly do to save me. I mean, there was nothing else she could have done um, to save me at that point. My dad was just uh, relentless. He uh, was stalking before stalking was even a thing. Um, And he was determined. So he wasn't giving up and he did what he did. And so um, I saw that she was a hero and I said, I want to, you know, bring memory to her. And um, it started one of the places I saw she got resources that he actually attacked her in front of was the women's center. And a counselor came out and saved her at that time. And I immediately said, okay, um, Tarrant County Women's Center, here I come. And they have uh, what's called Victory Over Violence. Um, It's a 5K. And I asked uh, a couple friends, hey, go with me. I want to walk for my mom in memory of my mom. And it really started with just maybe eight of us. Like I had like eight friends. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just like, you know what? I'm just doing this, just walking along. And it felt good. Um, and then after that, I did a re- balloon release um, in the alley where I was left. And I said, God, I don't know what you want me to do with this, but whatever it is, you know, I'm, I'm following through. And the next morning I woke up and God said to me, Cheryl's voice. And I was like, mm, what is that? What is that? So the next year I did Victory Over Violence team. And I had probably like 80 people that signed up and the team was named Cheryl's Voice. And so it really started with me supporting the Women's Center. I would donate my birthday um, and people would donate money on uh, social media or they would um, give me cash. And I would take those donations and give them to the Women's Center because uh, they do free counseling and really it's about, you know, trauma therapy and they do a whole lot of stuff. But my biggest concern was like, I want to make sure that they're having funds for therapy. And so um, that's how it started was me doing a 5k walk. And judge Carr is the one who kind of pushed me to talk more about it. And so he called me into his chambers and he had a bunch of lawyers. Cause I think he does like mentoring or something. And they were sitting there and he was like, Latasha, I want you to come down and talk, share your story to these lawyers because they're about to be prosecutors. And I feel like, 
you know, them knowing about domestic violence and um, survivor uh, is important. And I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I went down um, and I talked to them and the feedback is really what made me realize that that's what I was supposed to be doing was sharing my story. Um, and it just kind of went from there where more people, um, I think, Probably Judge Carvalho told me to a lot of other <laughs> entities and conferences. And so now I'm a national speaker at this point. But it just started with me, you know, talking in Judge Carr's chambers, talking, you know, at churches uh, that would ask me to come and during Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And it just really took off. I did not want Cheryl's Voice to be a nonprofit. I was speaking um, at UTA, as a matter of fact. And a lady came up to me and says, you know, the work you're doing is very big and you should be a nonprofit and I'll make it happen. And so she did all the paperwork and <laughs> kind of made it a nonprofit. I still know what I'm doing, to be honest, but because um, <laughs> I, I really don't like, you know, she's like, well, are you because she reached out to me recently. It was like, you know, how's fundraising going? I'm like, it's not I don't I use my salary to pay for the things I do to serve. Um, I do hope because one of the things that, you know, it started out with me just speaking. Then another time someone heard me speak, they worked for Amazon and they said, oh, we want to support you. And I'm like, sure. Didn't know what that meant. And all of a sudden they start sending me emails with donations from everything from hygiene products to like laptops for or or ring cameras. And I'm like, what am I going to do with all these donations? And um, starting out, I um, was able to find a storage unit that was willing to donate a space for us. And so we would pick up these donations and I would give, I would have community, I call them community giveaways. We would have community giveaways and it's literally set up like a grocery store. People can come in and get whatever they want for free. However, there's a catch because <laughs> it's Amazon stuff. Everyone shows up, um, but they have to be educated. So we educate uh, them. I do a whole workshop teaching them about domestic violence. And that's a way to kind of get people that probably never will walk in um, some education And so, um, unfortunately I lost my storage and our movers. So, um, that's going to be my next mission is, you know, working on trying to find a new place to, to do that. Um, so we can continue doing that mission because it's just really about educating the community, um, giving back to the community because all these people need things. Um, but also making sure they understand that domestic violence is real. It's happening every single day. And we have to keep talking about it. And so any way that I can bring memory to the loss of my mom, it's really what it's about for me. Um, even when I, you know, use my own salary, it's, it's, it's just really the goal is to be able to touch as many people as I can, as long as I'm here to do that. Um, I got two, two train paths I'm thinking of taking here. So Bear with me while I try to work this thought process out. But um, your day-to-day for Cheryl's voice, okay? Let's say you are you got a case. Um, walk me through how a case is start to finish. Um, I know they're all unique and they have their own set of circumstances, but right. what's the format? What, what can a potential victim that may be listening to this or somebody that knows somebody who's a victim – um, can expect and just kind of guide me down that path. So basically with Cheryl's voice, I don't really have cases per se. 
Um, sometimes victims do reach out. They'll send me a message on DMs or something like that. And I do collaboration. I don't reinvent a will. Um, so I refer them to One Safe Place. One Safe Place has been such a blessing to Cheryl's voice. They offer us office space there. And so instead of me, you know, kind of taking on and doing the stuff that they do, I refer to them. Um, I refer to the Women's Center if they uh, need some type of uh, resource that, you know, either or. And so depending on what their need is, they automatically get a referral to one of the entities that are right here in the county. Now, I do have sometimes get someone that sends me a message that's on a whole nother state. And so I'll do my research um, and, and try to contact who, who, whatever entity is close to them and refer them there. Um, the only real thing that um, is requested of me is educating, doing the workshops. Um, and then I've added the component of the community giveaways, which honestly, I love. I love having those giveaways because I'm able to, you know, get products and things in people's hands that um, need it, especially ring cameras like. I've had several people who are now able to, um, you know, the, the abuser will show up and leave by the time the police get there. And so now they have a ring camera that can say, here he is right here, you know, yep, which violated. is helpful to the police. Right. It's, which is helpful to the police when they come. They're like, aha, we got you, sir. Don't say you wasn't here because you're on this camera. And so um, those that's the other component that we've had. But uh, a lot of it is just really educating any and everywhere I'm requested to go. Um, and then having those community giveaways to educate and then connecting people to the resources that are right here. But yeah, that was my biggest thing. Like I'm not, I don't want to reinvent the wheel. I'm not in competition with any of the domestic violence entities. Um, any way that I can support them um, is who, you know, they know they can call me, um, which is probably why Michelle Ballin told me. For she did. She's for like, I have this girl you need to talk to. You think I'm interesting. Like she's great. We'll get her on. I was like, Hey, I'm this, my platform is your platform. I said, you just tell me, I was like, as long as they got a topic that they can educate about. And I think it's going to help communities. I was like, it's, it's really easy to get on here. It's not that hard. So, um, I was like, yeah, yeah. I'm down. And I trusted her. I said, you know, I was like, if you say she's good, she's good. So, and I'm, well, I'm very happy so far. I'm glad she got you on here. <laughs> thank you. So, yeah, I mean, I'm collaboration and partnership and supporting each other is really the fabric of Cheryl's voice. Um, and I keep it that way because, you know, and I feel that, you know, to bring honor to the loss of my mom, um, I don't want it to be tainted any other way. All right. So if you're just listening to this show, um, this isn't live, by the way, I'm just saying for when the recording yes. comes out, um, if you're listening right now on the screen, if you check this out on Rumble or YouTube, um, I have Cheryl's voice actually up on the screen um, and it is C-H-E-R-Y-L-S-V-O-I-C-E dot org. Um, and I, I got the website up here. Um, it's very uh, I like the TCU colors. Uh, yes, you know, purple is the color of domestic violence awareness. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, just talk to and what's funny is I have like all my stuff is purple, right? And so I even have a purple car. And when people <laughs> when people see my car, especially in Fort Worth, they're like, "Oh, you go to TCU?" I was like, "No, did you know the color?" So I start educating them without it, them even wanting it about domestic violence. <laughs> oh man, yeah, <laughs> that was the point of getting a purple car because I knew people would think TCU. <laughs> yeah. I guess you can definitely see my ignorance on that. Uh, my bad. I did not know that. Um, I'm just scrolling through here and just checking out. That must be the judge you were talking about. Yes, Judge Carr. Yeah. Okay. 
Very cool. Yeah. Um, so um, you guys can visit this website. And again, I will post the actual address right there so you can see it. Um, very cool. Man, your website's so clean. Oh, thank you. You know, I let me give my shout out to the net. Uh, Sarah, ba, uh, she's executive director of the net. I don't know if you've heard of the net in Fort Worth, but um, that's, you know, being we we support each other and she said you know i'll do your so she did my website because i have no nut I, I don't know nothing about it yeah, i don't know how to do it yeah well, but shout out to the net um they did my website and i'm i'm happy <laughs> that's mine this is what mine looks like it's very oh, basic <laughs> but it's, cute, it's yeah it's very simple uh i think that's yeah, yours is no offense to my website person. I still like mine, but uh, yeah. yeah. Well, well, well. Show's voice is Sorry. a non-profit Thank organization. You Sarah from the net. <laughs> <laughs> so the um, net, matter of fact, the net is uh, they do um, they work with victims of sex trafficking. And oh, they also okay. Once they play. I might have to interview that person. That's yeah, like a, yeah. You probably won't be able to. You probably have to interview probably Melissa because I think Sarah probably has a lot going, but. Um, probably Melissa or Jordan, but I will definitely do a email yeah. to you. Well, let them know. I can do multiple. Like I just, I've got a limit of one, two, three, four, five other guests I can have on this at one time. So, um, and then, uh, oh, also I was going to mention this for anybody that, um, wants to check out, uh, Cheryl, she, uh, Cheryl, I'm calling you Cheryl because I keep reading uh, Cheryl. Uh, yes, Latasha, <laughs> Latasha is on YouTube. Uh, you did a, um, I don't know what to call a promo. Is that what this is? Um, yeah, it's kind of like a promo about Cheryl's voice. It's kind of like a short condensed kind of quickly telling my story and giving more information. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you can like a promo or I call it a learn, learn about. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I I like it. Yeah. A little educational uh, documentary. (laughs) So, um, I got short documentary. I like that one. Let's go with that. (laughs) So I got that up on the screen right now. Let me close this out. Um, all right. So I want to get onto the, uh, not that this wasn't serious, but the more, um, sensitive topic of, Okay, you being a victim of uh, domestic violence, I want anybody that's listening that has been a part of that or doesn't understand it. That's really more the part. I want people to understand, like, growing up, the the trauma, the 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 i mean it, you still deal with it today i know you probably do most domestic violence people uh victims deal with it their entire lives but what was the process like for you growing up knowing what you know so growing up i really didn't i mean my grandmother cuz uh i was 18 months and so i want to highlight that because most people feel like oh they're too young they're not going to be affected and um Surprise, I'm affected. Um, at the moment I was born, I had immediate surgery because my mom was, no one knew that she was being abused, um, but she was under so much strain and stress um, where I had to have like the surgery on my belly button. Um, and it just kind of went downhill from there. And so I, I had bone, you know, weak bones. And, um, you know, there was a time, six months, I was already with a broken hip because my dad assaulted my mother. And she dropped me. Um, and so my bones were already weak. So my hip broke um, and the doctors didn't think I would walk. And 
fast forward to, you know, having, you know, in, in school, I was having a lot of suicidal, I, I was suicidal for a long time. And I just didn't understand what was going on with me, to be honest. And back then, trauma counseling and children and trauma, that was not even a word. Like people didn't know um, really what was going on um, until it wasn't until I got into college and I realized, I'm like, you know, I need to probably go to therapy. I had someone tell me I need to go to therapy because I was angry a lot um, and I would stuff a lot of things and not talk about it. And so, yeah, I just, you know, as far as health wise, I suffer with a lot of health issues all throughout my life. Um, you know, with the weak bones, I end up having, um, uh, I have a disability in my right arm um, because of it. And um, it's just been a journey. And um, I also have what they call a nerve damage in my my brain. And uh, sometimes I have random numbness and tingling on the right side of my face. And um, when I was, before I did the whole investigation and stuff and kind of went to the doctors and they connect the dots, um, I used to just thought it was migraines. I didn't know what was going on and I would take like Tylenol and stuff. And um, so that's another reason why it's important to me because um, a lot of parents don't understand that if a child has been through some trauma like that, they're probably going to have some health issues. And so attack it, you know, early on. Don't think, oh, it's just a headache. Go ahead and take them in and have them uh, seen. And, um, but, you know, like I said, back then, nobody knew. Um, yeah. So now, now we know we're talking, <laughs> we're talking about it in this day and time. And so um, it, it was not, it was not easy. I think from the outside, like people I went to school with, if you ask them, they were like, oh, Tasha's fun. She's this. She's always happy. These types of things. You know, I was the girl who's on student council and the straight A student and all these other things. Um, but really, I was just hiding in the pain that I was in. I just didn't want people asking me about my mom. I didn't want, you know, because I remember kids would tease me and like, oh, that's why you raised by your grandmother. Uh, they would call me all kinds of names. And, you know, it was it was tough. Um, most kids have some type of rough childhood anyway if you, even if you have them both parents so imagine um having trauma on top of that yeah <laughs> and and um so it was it was not easy but i will say uh thank god for my grandparents my grandmother she's passed away about three years now but um man she was amazing like she would um sometimes i'll wake up and she was praying over me or something but you know those prayers worked i believe it did um, and she always fed into me um, about, you know, positivity, um, encouraging me to, you know, do whatever, you know, God's called me to do. And I'm like, I don't know what that is, but <laughs> yeah. um, I'm going to be OK. And so it wasn't easy. Absolutely not. Um, and it's still a journey. Um, that's something that and I tell people all the time, you know, grief is something that's a lifelong journey. It gets better. Um, you can choose how you grieve. Um, I had to make a choice and it was because I had a teacher in elementary school tell me that um, um, I would less likely succeed because I was orphaned and raised by my grandparents and statistics said that I would less likely succeed. And so I had to make a choice at that moment. Um, would I be a statistic or would I choose to overcome that? And so that kind of, you know, with the encouragement of my grandparents, that kind of made me hit the ground running on what I want to do in my life. And, um, I'm still running, you know, I don't want to, I I'm, have never been in an abusive relationship and I'm determined to keep that, um, consistent, um, with my life. It's not easy though. You know, I have to background check guys. <laughs> if you want to date me, you're going to get background checked. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
I mean, but you'd be surprised. Like I can meet. I've matter of fact, one of my workshops I do. Um, I actually show a real live thing where I met this guy, and it just went sat, like within days. You know, I discovered that he had an extensive history of abuse, and he targeted me. He knew he saw me on the news talking about my story, and he approached me in the mall, looking all nice and stuff. And he had a whole plan, what and it hell? didn't work. Yes, oh, it's a good workshop. It's good. <laughs> oh my god! But yeah, I, I show like the the um, the text messages, the whole conversation, how it escalated, how quickly, and I'm glad I do that because. As me as an expert, everyone kind of assumes like, oh, you know, no one's going to, you know, you're an expert. And I'm like, this is how quick a victim. So they kind of look at it differently after I show them that. And I'm like, this is how quick and easy. If I wasn't due diligent and I just believed that this guy, you know, was a good guy because he presents well. Yeah. He looks well. You know, I looked him up. He had a great career. He had, you know, Maserati or whatever. Um, he was doing well for himself. But because of. Um, the work that I do, I dig deeper and beyond that. And so very quickly, I call it my seven day trial. <laughs> um, very quickly, I was able to discover he was a monster and, and I use him in my presentations, <laughs> man. And it's, it's crazy that these domestic violence actors just, they're master manipulators and control mm-hmm. freaks. And sounds like he, he, he had a, he's going for a trophy. Yes. And that was like for him. And that's really what pissed him off so quickly. Once he realized that I wasn't buying, you know, I wasn't kind of falling into the the rabbit hole. Um, He got really pissed off. And it was because the ultimate prize is to get someone like me, you know, the, the, you know, she, she knows about domestic violence. She has, you know, if I can trick her into falling into these web of lies, I've, I've won the ultimate prize, like you said. Yeah. yeah. And and he knows it just on to the next once he's done with you. So it, uh-huh. um, or he'll just try to hold that level of control for as long as he can. But yeah, yeah. I, it's, that's the consistent thing that I've, I've seen in my training experiences, just this manipulation, the, the it's, it's sickening to see some of the yeah. ways these guys, and I say guys because generally speaking, that's usually what it is. Um, right. Uh, but let's not forget the lessons we learned from Johnny Depp. Guys can be victims too. So you <laughs> guys may- can be victims. Um, you know, we we have seen in Terra County, we've actually had a few uh, males, you know, men killed by um, their partner. Um, homicide so mm-hmm. that men definitely can be victims um unfortunately they don't they don't reach out it's not, and i hope i wish they do um especially when it comes to um you know like verbal abuse and stuff like that i'm like guys come on <laughs> you know yep. it's not healthy but it's hard to get a man to to say to open up and say that um they're in something toxic that's a whole nother yeah challenge. i just just was reviewing a case uh last week um dude she shot at him now, luckily, she didn't hit him, but she mm-hmm. shot at him. She wasn't playing. Um, yeah. And I guess it's just been a long history of him. He had been calling on her, you know. She's over here tearing the house up. She's over here doing this. She's over here doing that. Somehow she got a hold of a gun. Luckily, it didn't yeah. connect. But I think I think that was his wake-up call. Hopefully it was because sometimes, you know, if you think women don't leave, huh, men. <laughs> I mean, I've had a man, you know, she didn't chase him around with lighter fluid, threatening to kill him and all these things. 
Jeez. Police come out and then he decides he wants to marry her. Oh, we just, oh, the other one that I saw, the guy's walking in the street. They just got done arguing and he's like walking to his car and she took her car. And was like, boom, just sandwiched him. Yeah. yeah. I, I think he lived. I hope he lived, but um, I think he lived. But yeah, he got jacked up from that. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's, you know, and I'm an equal opportunist. I'm man or woman. What I don't care your color or skin. It doesn't matter to me. If you commit domestic violence, I'm posting it. So on the Cheryl's Boys Facebook page, I po- I usually post, um, you know, domestic violence cases that make it to the news and stuff like that. Like, I don't care who you are. I'm going to light you up on my page. Nice. <laughs> um, so you, you, you do the education portion, you know, um, with the victims and whatnot. One of the things that I think Michelle and I talked about that you do that I've, or you've talked about doing or something to that effect. So I apologize. I don't fully remember exactly how she said it. The thing that stuck out to me, she said, you have tried to reach out or do reach out to the actors, the ones that are committing the domestic violence to try to give them some sort of education. So my uh, job that helps fund Cheryl's work, <laughs> my nine to five is uh, I work for Tarrant County Judge Cummings Court with the Domestic Violence Diversion Program. And um, that is working with the offender of domestic violence. And I get asked all the time, like, what? <laughs> no, I, I think say, it's brilliant. <laughs> well, honestly, what my idea was literally guys, because I was like, I don't want to do that. But um, I, I, I did take time to think about it. And I said, you know, it's approaching domestic violence in a holistic manner. I already work with victims, you know, and uh, children and kind of working in that wheelhouse, which is what I'm passionate most about. But uh, getting a hold of the offender, holding them accountable and getting them the help that they need um, is the last piece of the puzzle, to be honest. And so um, although there are so many people that kind of feel like, well, just put them in jail, that doesn't work, honestly, you know, because there's something going on. Um, I have I remember seeing one case where the guy, uh, I mean, he was fully accountable. I mean, and that's rare because honestly, a lot of times the abuser comes in and they're kind of like, she was drunk. I could write a story and, and tell you what it, and they all say the same thing. She was drunk. She had, got bad. She got an attitude. You know, it's always the same thing. And I'm just like, okay, let me hold you accountable. But this guy, totally different. He came in and he's like emotional about it. He was like, I don't know why I attacked And he gave me exactly what he did to his wife. And that's full accountability right there. And he said, you know, I, I, I hate myself because I'm turning into my father. And so then we, cause I do a full interview with them and I'm like, well, tell me about, you know, how was your childhood with your mom and dad? Dad was a monster, you know, with his mom abusive to him, yeah. took him to drug houses, just a whole host of things. And you think he's ever been to therapy? No. You think he's ever addressed any of his trauma? No. So when he had whatever conversation him and his wife had at the time, he had this huge moment of where he just snapped into automatically doing something that he saw growing up and didn't even realize that that was going to happen. And so that goes back to, you know, you got to deal with your traumas. You know, people get into these relationships and they have all these broken pieces and they're not putting them together. They're not healing from them. And so getting them the help that they need, um, holding them accountable is really important. Now, his story is really like one of a million, to be honest. Most of them are very, you know, cocky and attitude and I shouldn't be here. She should be here type of thing. And it takes a lot of work me and my other coworker have to do 
to hold them accountable, get them to, you know, take their classes seriously, to go to therapy, to do all this inner work. Um, But the important part of that is if we can get them to stop, even if they're not with the same person anymore, hopefully we won't see someone else that they've, you know, abused in the system. And so the whole goal is to, you know, get them to get their children help if they have kids and also get the help that they need. So during that, we can kind of break up this um, domestic violence in, our, in, the, in the city one by one, you know, by person by person. I think you would significantly increase your odds of solving the issue by at least pointing to a cause or multiple reasons for why the offender is doing what they're doing. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, well, you're like you said with the last guy, you know, your father was an abuser. So maybe I know it seems like it's common sense, but sometimes you need somebody else to point it out to you. You like start to connect the dots and yeah. Oh shit. Like that's why, like that was my, you know, um, impression of how a guy's supposed to treat his exactly significant other. Cause it's his dad. So, right. Exactly. And so taking doing the time, that. yeah, taking the time to point that stuff out to them. Um, I think even if you don't succeed at that moment, if you don't succeed with that case, now, now they know, and now they're, they've got their own process. Everybody's got their own process of dealing with their own mm-hmm. drama and trauma and all that stuff. So, right. Um, just it like, takes time. Yeah. But just like with you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It takes time, but for sure. I mean, occasionally we have the ones that probably are going to reoffend because they come in like, I had the perfect childhood. I had, I've never witnessed, I never did. And, and you know, and it's all the victim's fault. And I'm like, yeah, you're not going to be in this program. You're going to jail. Like, yeah. <laughs> we're, not, we're not doing it, you know? Um, yeah. So it, it really takes a lot of work and, and it takes, you know, holding them accountable. But I can say that when, and these are first time offenders, by the way, these are not, you know, repeat offenders. Um, oh, okay. But they this is their first time being arrested for domestic violence. Um, and then it, they have to do the work. They have to show that they're making change and they have to show that um, they realize, you know, and majority of them, like 99.9% of them witnessed abuse as a kid and never was treated, never did therapy, never even talked about it uh, type of thing. Um, and then they end up in, in the court system. Okay. Um, in your experience, does it seem like in domestic violence when it comes to uh, social workers and stuff, is it very female dominated? Um, Actually, as of late, um, I know UC Austin is having more and more guys um, that are coming out. But for the most part, yes, women are dominating the social work field. And that's probably because of the stigma, right? You know, a lot of times, I mean, I don't want to be a social worker. That's what girls do. Um, and then you have men who feel like social workers don't make enough money. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just thinking, you know, like with the case where you're talking about trying to get the offenders to see, to, to, to see where these paths came from in their childhood or wherever mm-hmm. it is. Um, they already have obviously issues with females. And so I'm just wondering, would that same approach work better? Would it work worse with uh, a male social worker? But I, I, right. I honestly, I don't know that I know any male social workers. That's why I, that's yeah, why I start um, thinking about it. It's like, damn, everybody I know in domestic violence and stuff like that is 
as female. a woman. Yeah. Um, well, you'd be happy to know that uh, I, I not only have a male social worker, a licensed social worker, counselor, but he's a black man. <laughs> and it's very rare, but I, I found you one. You got him. You got the unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> I found one and he's excellent. But um, there are more men. Um, and matter of fact, when I graduated, there were quite a few guys who had social work, graduated with social work degrees. Um, so there are more men who are starting to want to be social workers because um, of some of the youth stuff that they want to be active in and those types of things. So it is helpful, but I think we're still probably going to have more women. That's just the nature of social work, to be honest. But um, I am glad to see more men that are you know, graduating with social work degrees and seeing that, hey, you can be very helpful um, to, to a man. Um, I personally have not had well, I, I do. I have, you know, sometimes it's a culture thing. You know, if someone has an issue with women in their culture, like a woman telling them in authority, it's like a huge problem for them. Uh, yeah. And I have to, you know, kind of set them straight sometimes. But for the most part, you know, I kind of feel like even when I worked at the sheriff department as a jailer, you know, firm but fair, as long as I'm consistent and I, I treat them as human, um, I don't have anyone that's coming at me disrespectfully um but occasionally you know you're gonna have um someone that does (laughs) but yeah i do think that uh, it would be helpful if more men uh did want to be social workers but that's just you know until they up the salary probably (laughs) yeah now is the program um when you're talking to the offenders is that is that working is it worth the is it worth doing in your opinion is it something we need to throw more energy at? Is it something that is working just fine? um, So the domestic violence diversion program has a really low recidivism rate, um, like extremely low. Um, So I do think it works. Um, I think that um, in partnership with, you know, the the entities that we refer to for the BIP classes and making sure we uh, send them to therapy and holding them accountable for that and kind of monitoring that, is is what helpful and then the fact that they understand that if you don't do these things and make real change um you're going to reoffend. you're going to be you know back in jail and a lot of these guys had never seen a jail cell but they've never been in legal trouble and so some of them just going to jail shook them up and they're like oh my god you know how did i get here so i do see the benefits um but of course can't save everyone you're going to have some people who just don't get it maybe too far gone to, you know, really, you know, even though this is their first time getting arrested by police, probably not their first time offending. And so they blame the entire world at some point and it's just going like this over their head. And so small percentage of them uh, will probably not, not make it uh, even to succeed, or they're probably going to, if they did like fake it all the way to the end, um, they're going to reoffend. And so, but that's a really, that's a really small percentage. Since I've been there, I think I've only had like one case, um, one person that reoffended, and that was that's huge. Yeah, that's a, that's a, in statistical standards, that's a, a very significant number because yeah, that doesn't happen. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, that doesn't happen very often when it comes to uh, rehabilitation and, like you said, the recidivism yeah. and stuff like that. That's uh, yeah, it just takes it huge. takes a lot of work, and it takes, um, you know, me. What I found is shining light on, you know, even though they may be the done the worst thing to this person, 
for, you know, another component of them, they love their kids. And so when you start talking about how this affects your kids and do you want your daughter to be in a, with a man like you? Oh man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like taking that mirror to their face. And that's when they kind of hone in on what they what's happened and really make change is when you start doing that. Now, if you have somebody that don't really care about the kids, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a problem. But it's, it's huge problem. coming from someone like you who's a survivor. Yeah. You know what I mean? The perspective is much different than somebody that just got their social work, you know, degree and yeah. is coming in based off of, you know, what they've learned versus what they've experienced. Right. And, you know, a lot of my guys, um, and I have women too, but a lot of them, you know, they very narcissistic uh, when they come in my office. So I don't even have to share my story because they've already looked me up because they got a little attitude. Um, and so they Googled me and they, you know, all of my stuff is there, which is fine. Yeah. Um, and so they come in with this whole like, oh man, she's really going to let me have it. Yep, I am. <laughs> oh man. That's, so, uh, I think I, I'm sharing this and I think I spelled it wrong. I forgot the L. Save. There we go. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I, cause you were talking about your social media. So I popped your social media up there and I, I, that's spelled. It's I am Cheryl C H E R Y L S. Y L. Okay. I've got dyslexic. I didn't have the L to begin with. So that's where I really screwed up. Cheryl's voice. There we go. Um, Oh, yeah, look at this. I screwed up on this one, too. I didn't even notice that you asked me to look at it, and I was like, sure, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, I just I just happened to glance at it. I was like, oh, I'm dyslexic. I got my letters backwards. Okay, so if you're listening to this, you know, Cheryl's voice is spelt like you would think it would be, C-H-E-R-L-Y-S. Why? Yes, and I spelled it incorrectly two times. Yeah, I'm spelling it wrong. I'm like, why is this C-H-E-R-Y-L-S? Because I'm an idiot. Uh, yeah, I did it wrong yeah. again. B H E R Y L. Yeah, why? <laughs> I think it's not me. I think it's the. I think it switched it back. It didn't save it. That's what happened. I didn't save it. Yeah. Okay. I'm like, I just fixed it. C H E R Y L S voice. I know you can't see it on your end, but there's when you edit this stuff. Um. There's a save and there's a cancel button. And I, I twice I hit cancel like in like a morning <laughs> oh, okay. yeah, instead of hitting it. save. Like my brain said, go to save and I hit cancel. So <laughs> anyway, now that I got your social media stuff, right. I am Cheryl's voice uh, at Cheryl's. I at I am Cheryl's I voice. Am- Girl's voice. I'm apart and I haven't even drank today. So uh, <laughs> normally when we do this, like I was rushing, you know, I got stuck in traffic trying to get to, we had planned this for five 30 and I was 10 minutes late because I was rushing trying to get home. Um, sorry about that. Um, it's usually okay. very I, prompt. I was like, I didn't even look at your email until I saw, I was like, I'm, he probably got stuck in traffic when you weren't there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm very, I'm very prom military. So I'm usually 15 minutes early. So when I'm late, it bugs the hell out of me. And so I'm like I'm trying to give you every notification I can like stuck in traffic almost. home. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. I'm, um, I'm very prompt too. I think this is a part of the work that we do. We like to be on time. Yes. <laughs> All right. So in, We've, we've talked about um, Cheryl's voice, 
talked about your experience, um, your education. Uh, I think, you know, we've humanized you. That's what I like to do. I like to humanize my guests so people kind of understand you, where you came from. Um, what, what do you do uh, for fun and what do you do to actively um, conquer the, the post-traumatic stress that, that comes from your situation? Therapy, crisis account, I say the two, two C's, crisis counseling. Um, you know, I'm very rooted in my my faith and um, therapy. I I would be nowhere without you know going to therapy. Um, now at this point in my life, I go like once a month. I think people feel like okay, I don't have to go to therapy anymore. Yeah, I do because the work that I'm doing on a constant basis, I'm always getting dumped on. Sometimes I have, sometimes I just have tough moments. You know, May is Mother's Day, my mom's birthday, uh, my grandmother passed away in May. It's just, May is tough. And yeah. so, you know, having that, recognizing that, you know, and not allowing myself to just, you know, get depressed um, is why I plug into therapy. Um, fun. I love music. I love music. My favorite artist is Babyface and Johnny Gill. So anytime okay. most, people, <laughs> most people that know me, know that I am at the concert. Anytime Babyface is here, I'm there. You would think that uh, I'm a super fan because I am. <laughs> yeah, I was just listening to Babyface today. Uh, when can I see you again? Oh, Love that song. Uh, yeah, listen, have, if you've never seen him live, never. you gotta go. Like He is absolute best in yeah. concert. Um, so I go to a lot of concerts. New, I think the last one I went to was New Edition. New Edition, yeah. Um, so, but I love all kinds of music. I really want to go see George Strait, but I can't afford George Strait. I, don't, I mean, yeah. I don't know who can afford George Strait, but I'm hoping one day somebody, you know, <laughs> loves me enough to give me a ticket because I'll never get to see him. I guess I have to listen to his music on the radio because um, George Strait loves his uh, ticket prices. <laughs> yeah, I have to wait till an event comes into our city to work it. So then I get to see it. I get to see it while Listen, I'm being paid. So I need you to, you know, work it and then ask them, hey, can you also give me a ticket? <laughs> sneak you, sneak you in the back door. That's like a dream come true to see George Stray. I love him. Um, yeah. So I just all genres of music, except for heavy metal, really. Um, not really a big fan of that, but you can't miss me with music. Um, I love karaoke. Um, I go to different places to, to do karaoke. So, but most of the time it's like music or plays um musicals uh right now uh, i haven't been to a play in a while because um a production company reached out to me and asked to share my story so cheryl's voice has a play coming up next month and so that'll be a play that i'm going to is my own <laughs> really yes that, where is this gonna be at it's in fort worth because of course i'm from fort worth so is it, it has be at the to Jubilee? be in fort worth. it's at the scott theater scott um, theater it's in the Scott Theater in Fort Worth. Um, if anyone wants information, they can pull it up on social media. Um, it's a it's called I'm Cheryl's Voice, uh, Cheryl's Voice Play. But um, I have I'm not in it. Uh, matter of fact, the lady, you know, again, I don't know why. You know, people can hear me somewhere and they will say, "Hey, I want to do this for you." And so that's what happened. She heard me speak, and she said, um, "I see you at all the plays." Because when I say I go to a lot of them, I go to a lot of them. They would think I'm uh, a part of the team or something. And she said, would you mind if I share your story in a play? And I'm like, sure. And honestly, I thought it was going to be like a little little high school type of play. Um, I, this is a whole production. I didn't realize <laughs> I didn't realize that until just yesterday. I'm like, oh, this is a big deal. This 
Y'all have like real, real actors and singers. Like they're going to really be telling my life story. Yeah. They should have <laughs> so, like followed you around your house for a few months, like to, to get in character. Well, and so it's going to be kind of based on like when I did the investigation, so I was younger and stuff. And so that's kind of cool. Okay. Um, and so it's really just highlighting um, domestic violence on all ends. And um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Um, but, yeah, for fun. I, I just love I love music. I love going out. I love any type of live band. I'm there to enjoy uh, some good music. That's kind of like my getaway, my escape. I used to write lyrics when I was um, like lyrics from the radio. I don't know back. I don't know if you're. Oh, you did graduate when I did. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, back in school, I I never got to still have a binder full of lyrics, and I would like sit there on the radio and record the song, and then I'll play it, and I would write all the lyrics down. <laughs> yeah. Because memorizing music back in the day was important because you wanted yes. to impress your friends then, that you knew all the words. You know, exactly. Growing... And then people were like, hey, you got this song. And I'm like, boosted song. <laughs> like, here you go. You can borrow my lyrics. You better give me back my lyrics. You got to give me $5 so I can rewrite them. You know? Right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I, I, I so grew up in the time over... of burning CDs and stuff like that in oh, high school. Yes. I love making mixed CDs and I, I did all that. But over time, what I do for fun is change. So, like, and when I was younger, I would write poetry to kind of escape and escape from things. And I haven't, I can't remember the last time I wrote poetry, but I was really good. Um, you know, I wrote poetry and, and lyrics uh, from songs. And so now it's just, you know, going out, having, you know, fun. I try to dedicate um, one day in the weekend to where I'm just either taking myself out to have a drink um, or listen. To, usually wherever I'm doing that, they better have a live band or some really good music or, or something. Yeah. Um, so yeah, or I'm going to a concert, which if it's a good concert, I'm going to be there. <laughs> I got you. Okay. All right. The, the, I kind of want to, I want to finish it up with, um, in the direction you're going, it's very positive. It's very, um, it's good work. Obviously recidivism's going down and, um, you know, you're having a positive impact. You're connected with one safe place. They, they've provided you a spot to work. Which is yep, amazing. Yeah, I have a Stroforce office is right there. <laughs> so, with all of that, how can we improve? What would you like to see in a perfect world before you leave this earth? Where Where would you like us to be at, and how do we get there? Oh well, I would like to eradicate domestic violence, and uh, just come and listen to this. You're gonna be like, "Well, Tasha, I told you, as long as two people are together." <laughs> But I still say, if it was up to me, the best of odds would not exist. Everybody would be in healthy, happy relationships. They would argue in even tones, and they would just love on each other and love their kids. That's what. That's what I want. Like I, I hope by the day that God calls me home, that happens. But okay. uh, just kind of always bust my bubble when I say that. <laughs> Hey, it's an optimistic point of view, and I like that because I'm an eternal optimist. I it drives yeah. some of my coworkers nuts because they'll be complaining about something. I'm like, but what about this? Like, think about it this way. Like, there you go, you're complaining again. I was like, yeah. Turn, give me a, one positive. Tell me something positive out of what you just yeah. <laughs> complained about. Exactly. So ideal. I mean, that's really. I just don't want a child to go through what I went, what I went through. I mean, no child should have to go, you know, lose their mother so early. I mean, my mom was young. Like she was 15. She got pregnant and married 15 and she was killed by 17. And so 
I could, if she was still here, she would probably be like my best friend. Cause I'm, you know, 39 and she would be like 15 years older than me. So we would really be close in age. Yeah. And so I was robbed of that. And I never want another child to be robbed of, you know, losing their mother and, and father, you know, it's just, it's so unfair. And, you know, the fact that like, of course my grandmother passed. And so it's like, I have no one, you know, um, luckily I have, you know, some friends that have surrounded me, but you know, the reality is, you know, when I look at it, I don't have anyone left because of someone being selfish and took that from me. And so, um, I don't want someone else to, and that's why I work so hard, uh, because I don't want them to experience that. Um, while you were saying that, I thought of which grandparent raised you? Was it your mom's grandma or was your your mom's mom? Do you have a relationship with your dad's parents at all? Um, well, they passed away. Um, but no, sort of. So they would come around occasionally, uh, when, when I was a kid and, um, my grandmother, I will say, man, she was a, one, a heck of a woman. Cause she did not, um, say anything bad about our, our, my dad. Um, she did not prevent them from visiting, uh, and those types of things. It wasn't until I did the investigation when I discovered a whole lot of stuff that happened on their side of the family that I was very heartbroken about and discontinued all communication uh, at that point. But it wasn't because my grandmother, she never did say, she never did tell me. Okay. Okay. I was just curious. I'm like, cause that would be yeah. growing up. A couple of them odd. would come by, but they weren't. And that kind of made sense on why they were not coming by or trying to be consistent with the relationship. Yeah. Um, from when I did do the investigation, discover all the stuff that they did. Um, it made sense at that point. But um, so no, I don't have a relationship. Okay. Yeah, I was just curious about that. You know, I started thinking, I was like, raised by grandma, like, man, that'd be kind of odd to be raised by the grandma of the your dad, you know? Yeah, they didn't want me anyway, to be honest, so. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah I, I hear you. Um, all right, well, I, before we finish this, I think we hit a natural conclusion. Is there anything you want to put out there, anything else that I didn't ask that you want to you wanna talk about? Um, I think you covered it. I mean, I, I talked about the show's worst plays coming up. I would love to see you guys if y'all can come um, to Fort Worth. Uh, I know most people go to plays in Dallas, but I'm a Fort Worth girl. So we're having it right here in the city. All right. <laughs> so um, I would love to see you guys there for that. And um, just, you know, continue, you know, supporting the work that I do. It's very, um, you know, important. Um, especially, like I said, we, I literally just lost our storage unit. So I'm like, okay, I need to find a new, <laughs> cause I want to continue doing the giveaways. I love our giveaways that we give, um, to the community. Um, but I gotta have space for that stuff cause it can't go on my garage. It's too much. Well, <laughs> too maybe much through some of the connections on this podcast, we can find you some storage place. Um, I think my buddy, Gerald Kern, he runs a food what do they call that? Like when you give food away, it's not a food um, shop. It's a, like a pantry. Yeah. Or? Like a pantry type thing where, yeah, where they give out free food to needy um, people. Needy people. That doesn't sound right. To people that need food. <laughs> don't have food. I don't like saying needy. With gas prices, everybody, I need to go out to the pantry and get some food. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he runs that. It's a, it's a private business type thing. Um, okay. You know, type of nonprofit. But, um, I would imagine if anybody's got the connections to find you a storage unit, it'd be him. So 
Um, after I get done with this podcast and I edit it and all that good stuff, I'm going to send it to him and be like, Hey, take a listen. Thank you. Uh, that would a- be so helpful. Cause I mean, cause it started out like when Amazon started giving me donations, um, I just walked into a storage unit place and I asked them, I told them my story and I was like, you know, can y'all donate a space to us? And at first they couldn't donate it. So I was paying for it, but I couldn't, I was like, okay, I got bills. I can't keep paying for this out of pocket. Um, and so I talked to the owner and he agreed. And so we've had a storage unit for a couple of years, but they went out of business. And so just recently, and so I'm like, okay, crap, what am I going to do now? Yeah. I'm- <laughs> you know, doing that and, you know, the moving truck, which I was paying for that. And so they were helping me, you know, getting me the truck um, to pick up the items because Amazon, all they do is donate it. You got to have a truck, pick it up, you know, people pick it up and then put it in storage. So, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm in the same boat as you. I got this podcast going and what started out with a $2,000 budget agreed upon with my wife, you know, she supported me through this idea, uh, uh, grew quickly into like 13 grand. And now she's like, listen, if after a year you're not getting some sort of sponsorships or something, it's gotta go like, cause it's not just that 13 grand. And then now it's the, it's the putting the episodes out. It's the software that's involved. These are all monthly fees. So it, yeah, it's compounding. Like, so <laughs> listen, uh, like uh, my salary has to pay my bills. So yeah. God, you're going to have to send a blessing yep. <laughs> or Cheryl's voice giveaways are going to be uh, yes. on the bench. So. And I would hate to, you know, not, you know, cause they matter of fact, I just got an email, I think last week, and they said, Hey, we got donations for you. I said, I'm sorry. I, I didn't, I don't have the money to buy, you know, get the truck and I have nowhere to put it. So, um, and they said, Well, as soon as you get it, you know, together, please let us know. We want to give to you. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I will, um, I will do my work and I will try to at least get you networked with people that know better than me. Um, that would be great. Thank you so much. Hey, I, I like <laughs> to support you. me. I mean, um, Michelle's all, she's, I'm not surprised. She, yeah. She's queen of volatility. She's like, I want to introduce you with this person. And I, same as you, I didn't even, I think I just this morning I may have looked at yours. I didn't even really vet you. Like I yeah. Yeah. Because I but you trust Michelle. Myself. Yeah. Yep. I was the same. Um, you know, and she's married to somebody that I'm very familiar with, uh, yeah. you know, to the police department and whatnot. And um, I was like, well, if he thinks she's okay. <laughs> then I can trust her. Um, and then I got connected to Michelle from my sponsor. Uh, okay. Impact Tactical. Yeah. So they got us connected. And that's what I love about my sponsor is they're so well connected that they're getting me people to interview. It's not that I can't get people to interview. I want people outside of police work. I I've, I feel like I've heavily depended on my police career. Right. To, to have police guests, which is great. People love that stuff. But, um, well, I'm going to really connect you with the net, um, because they do some great work. I mean, not only do they help with victims of sex trafficking, they also have um, a worthy coast store where they hire victims of trafficking. So it kind of gives them that boost of self esteem. Yeah. And then Ty Bowden, um, he does the other side of that, which is, um, um, stopping the the traffickers where they do like those calls um to set kind of bait them in or place ads and stuff 
Um, like the Chris Hansons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Chris Hansen. <laughs> Ty is Chris Hansen. But yeah, they man, they they have a whole operation that they have going. I was on the board of, of the net, um, but with my dissertation, I had to step down for a little bit. So, um, but yeah, they do some great stuff. So I will send you an email and connect you with them. I think you'll love to interview them. That'd be great. I appreciate it. Well, uh, this was a great podcast. We went an hour and a half. Great time. Yep. Um, so it went smooth. I think we hit all the information and uh, I appreciate you being on, ma'am. Thank you. All right. You have a good day. You too.